0: back up. The title of my message today is called Sovereignty in Destiny. Pastor Jeremy talked last week about sovereignty and salvation. We're going to unpack that word sovereignty a little bit more this week, but today is Sovereignty in Destiny. Everybody say destiny. Everybody say I have a destiny. Mark Twain said it this way. He said the two most important days in a person's life are the day that person is born and then the day they find out why. I would add to that, there's another third critical day, and that's the day that you're born again, where you really begin to understand your purpose in the kingdom of God. Come on, somebody. Hallelujah. In the middle of all of that, in our journey, God is sovereign in our destiny, where he has destined us, where he has predestined us. The scripture says that all of us as believers, he's marked out beforehand that we would be made in his image, in the image of Jesus Christ. For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. That means what God did in Jesus, he's looking to do in your life as well. Come on, somebody. And so God's sovereign hand is on your life with a predestined purpose. This morning, our text for the whole series is found in Matthew chapter 19. I'd like you to read it out loud with me, please, if you would find a screen. Here we go. Jesus looked at them intently and said, humanly speaking, it is impossible. But with God, everything is possible. How many of you are thankful that with God, all things are possible? Come on. All right. So that's our text. It's but with God. So we've got an interruption You remember Sesame Street? That thing's been going 50 years. Golly. I think I was six or seven when I first saw the first ones. And I remember them teaching me conjunction, junction, what's your function? Remember that? Putting together words and phrases and sentences. Well, but is an interruption. It's an intervention. I'm headed one way and God steps into my path and stops me and alters my course. But, God, humanly speaking... The things that we're trusting for are not possible at all. But with God, all things are possible. Everybody say, with God, all things are possible. Genesis 50 verse 20 is the message text for this morning. Genesis chapter 50 verse 20, the Bible says, You intended to harm me, say it, but God intended it all for good. He brought me to this position so I could save the lives of many people. Genesis fifty twenty is the Romans 8-28 of the Old Testament. Anybody know what Romans eight twenty eight says? For we know. Everybody say we know. we know. How many of you know if we know it, we know it? I know that I know. Down in my knower, know, I know it. You can't you convince me otherwise. I know. We know that all things work together for good. As a matter of fact, it says it this way. We know that God works all things together for good. For those who love God. And who are the called according to his purpose. That's sovereign in destiny. You love him, say amen. You're called by him, say amen. God is working everything together for your good. Even the mess that you're in right now. He's going to work it together for your good. He, he, Jesus will work it out. Jesus will work it out. I need a choir. I need a choir. That's a part of my vision. Hasn't happened yet, but it's coming. (laughs) I hear those old black gospel songs rising up in my soul when I preach some of these kind of messages. What is it that when they used to sing, uh, you can't tell it like I can, what he's done for me. How many of you know, you got a story this morning and nobody can sing your song. Nobody can tell it like you can because God's done for, for you something that he hasn't done for somebody else. You intended to harm me. Does anybody know the context of this story? Absolutely. It's Joseph. The book of Genesis concerns itself with six primary characters, six men. Adam is the first man. Noah builds the ark. Then God starts a line in a family. He picks an Iraqi. He's not a Jew, he's an Iraqi. He's living in Ur of the Chaldees. A guy who's worshiping the moon, he's not seeking God. God steps into Abram's life and makes a covenant with him and changes his name to Abraham. Abraham and Sarah wait for 25 years for a promised son to show up. And here comes Isaac, which means laughter. Everybody go, ha-ha. (laughs) So Isaac comes along. He marries Rebekah. They have Jacob and Esau. The lineage continues through Jacob. So we've got Adam and Noah and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And then we're going to add the sixth one. Jacob wrestled with God. In Genesis 32, and God changed his name to Israel. He had 12 sons when it was all said and done. And those 12 sons became the, the heads, the fathers, of the 12 tribes of Israel. Okay, Israel is one man, his name is Jacob. God multiplies him into about 70 people before they go into Egypt when the famine hits and one of the sons is named Joseph, and so Joseph consumes a significant portion of the book of Genesis. Chapter 37, we see that he's born, he comes on the scene, he's a favored young man, the presence of God, the favor of the Lord's on his life. And then for the next 13 chapters, we skip 38 because it's kind of an odd story that interrupts Joseph and it talks about Judah and Tamar and kind of some illicit situations that took place and then all of a sudden 39 through 50 the rest of the whole book of Genesis consumes the whole story of this young man by the name of Joseph. And so that's the story we're going to be telling this morning. One thing if I say one thing. If you don't hear anything else that I bring this morning I want you to get this and your understanding. God is sovereign. He's not only in charge but he's in control. Say that with me. God is sovereign he's not only in charge but he's in control. Now, every Christian, regardless of your denominational affiliation or your belief structure, believes he's in charge. There's just a whole lot of them that don't believe he's in control. And this morning, I want to convince you of what I believe is a critical picture, an element, a facet of God's godness. Because if he's not sovereign, then he's not God. Okay? God is sovereign. He's not only in charge, but he's in control. Let's pray this morning. Heavenly Father, I ask you today to help me by the power of the Holy Spirit. Lord, I've labored before you this week and I've cried out to you and asked you, Lord, for fire in my bones, inspiration, O God, that would be brought to your people, that faith and courage could arise in their hearts. Lord, that you would convict us of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Holy Spirit, do the only work that you can. I can't do it. I can't preach good enough. I can't teach strong enough to convince folks, but the convicting presence of the Holy Spirit can transform a life. Do what only you can do today, I pray. You're the teacher. Give us open hearts. We submit our hearts and our lives to you, and I ask you today in Jesus' name that you would move in our midst, O God. I need you. I'm desperate for you. Lord, let us have open hearts and ears that hear and eyes that see to perceive and understand. We'll be careful to give you the praise and all the glory. God's people said... Amen. But God. But God is one of the most important phrases in the Bible. It gives us this idea or this concept that the God who is in charge and who is also in control can step into our human circumstances and radically alter our path. Pastor Jeremy did a remarkable job last week talking about sovereignty and salvation how God stepped into one Saul of Tarsus' life. He was riding his donkey on the road to Damascus with a pocket full of warrants, ready to take Christians into captivity and kill them for the cause of Pharisaism. And Jesus appeared to him on the road to Damascus and radically altered his life. And I want to tell you, really, that's everybody's story. Now, you, you weren't on a donkey when you got saved, And it might not have literally been a literal appearance of Jesus, but somehow Jesus showed up in your life through the gospel preaching of of, of a pastor of a church, through through the witness of a friend who shared Jesus with you, maybe a podcast you listened to, or maybe just the Spirit of the Lord dealing with you and drawing you into the Word, and you opened the Bible and something jumped off the page and God brought regeneration and you were converted and you cried out to God. I love that. But God. Everybody say, but God. So, but God gives us this picture of a God who is in charge and He's in control as well because He is sovereign. I love the scripture that Pastor Jeremy began with last week out of Ephesians chapter 2. It says that we were all dead in trespasses and sins and motivated by the spirit of this age in, in sin and in darkness. And it says, but God who was rich in mercy, wherewith his love. He loved us, and he has raised us up together with Christ. It says he has made us sit together with him in heavenly places, that in the ages to come he might show us the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us. For by grace are you saved through faith, that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained, that we should walk in them. Come on. I I, I, I memorized the book of Ephesians when I was in college. I would go out of my dorm room every day with a three-by-five card with a scripture written on it. I would visit with my friends in the hallways of the various buildings that we were in, but when I was by myself, I'd pull out the card if there was nobody around, and I would just read that scripture in between classes. If I was walking on the campus, I would very quietly mutter that scripture because that's what the word meditate means. It means to mutter. And I would hear myself saying it. I remember the day that I was walking from, from Twin Towers. I, I was living in Delta Hall and I was walking from Twin Towers on the campus of Arkansas State University and headed to a class in Wilson Hall. And I was memorizing the, the 10th chapter of the book of Romans. And it said, for the word of faith is nigh thee and even in thy mouth. And something grabbed a hold of me and I got excited and I think I looked around to see if there's anybody watching me, and I just had a little jig right there on the sidewalk. Nobody was around and looking. Because the Holy Ghost showed up while I was quoting the Word of God. I was a freshman at Arkansas State University, and I had a Bible revival. You know what a Bible revival is? It's when God gets inside you and creates and stirs up so much hunger that you can't put your Bible down. It wasn't me trying to just check off and make sure I read so many chapters a day. I could not stay out of the book. I would get up and set my alarm two hours before class, and I would read for an hour and and pray. And and it wasn't before long before I, I made sure I got myself into a private room. I didn't want to have a roommate anymore because I knew God was doing something in my heart And I'd get up in the morning, and I'd pray, and I'd go grab a shower, and I would come back, and I'd read the Word, and then I'd go to class, and I'd go grab a bite to eat, and I'd come back in the afternoon, and I'd spend the whole afternoon in the Word. My first year as a freshman at Arkansas State University, I read through the whole Bible. I read through the New Testament twice and the Old Testament once, and that's not to brag. I'm just telling you God showed up in my life, and I couldn't put my Bible down. And I knew his hand was on me. I knew his favor was on my life. I knew he was going to do something in my life in a dramatic kind of way. And I knew it was a season of preparation. And I couldn't put my Bible down. And as I read through it, I started to see words that would just leap off the page at me. And that first year, I started seeing from Genesis to Revelation, but God, but God, but the enemy was chasing David, but God did not deliver him into the hands of Saul. And all of these places where God interrupted somebody's circumstance and he showed up and he brought deliverance. He showed up and he brought healing. He showed up and brought provision. But God, I'm preaching way better than y'all are acting this morning. Come on. It amazes me. I've read through at least once every year since I was 18. I'm 58. I've read through the Bible probably close to 50 times now. And just the other day, I was in the book of Proverbs reading the chapter for the day and something that literally was, spoke to right where I was and what I needed to hear. It's like God just lifted it off the page and made it bigger and illuminated it. He drew my heart right into it. That idea is called the illumination of the Holy Spirit. It's not new revelation, but he's illuminating what I haven't seen yet. So it's new to me. Are you hearing me? I'll just tell you, if you just open your Bible and just open your heart at the same time, and instead of trying to read massive passages, just open your heart and let the Bible read you, and I promise you, God will show up in your life. But God jumped off the page at me that whole first year. Why? Because the Holy Spirit was my teacher. He was teaching me about the sovereignty of God, God who is sovereign, who's not only in charge, but he's in control. Everybody say, God is sovereign. He's not only in charge, but he's in control. That year, in my freshman level science, I was reminded about what took place in after the Renaissance, the rebirth of the arts, visual and music, philosophy, architecture. After that, we had a scientific revolution. And the beginning of that was with a guy by the name of Nicholas Copernicus. And Copernicus set forth a whole new idea. It had been believed based on an Egyptian astrologer's model of the, of the, what, what the known universe at that time was the earth and the sun and the moon and a few planets and some stars out there that didn't, nobody had any idea about. And so the idea was that the earth was the center of it all, and the sun and the moon and all the other planets were revolving around the earth. The earth was the center, it was a geocentric model. Now, this is not a science class, but this has a bearing. Because as the scientific revolution headed into play, the Roman church, the Roman Catholic church, persecuted both Copernicus and excommunicated Galileo. When they came along and declared that the earth wasn't the center of everything, but the sun actually was. It wasn't until Pope John II, who just went on to be with the Lord just a few years ago, who actually pardoned Galileo and reinstituted him posthumously into the church as a member because he'd been kicked out. Just because he discovered something out there that the church had wrong and basically just took it as truth. And anybody who comes along and challenges something that you've assumed, how many of you know, really makes all of us mad at some point? Are you with me? Yeah, what's the whole point? Why are you taking up precious minutes on Sunday morning to talk about the Copernican Revolution? They switched from a geocentric model, the earth being the center, to a heliocentric model, the sun being the center. So basically what it was showing was, something's going on to show us that we, earth, are not the center of this whole purpose of God, but the Son is, and the S-U-N is the S-O-N. Are are you hearing me this morning? So, the one thing that is missing from so much 21st century preaching is a God-centered idea, a theocentricity. God at the center of all of this, that this is for Him and through Him and by Him, and by Him all things exist. That He is the Alpha and the Omega, He is the beginning and the end before and behind and and over and above and last and all of these things, Jesus is the center of it all. Somebody say amen. Now, what this does for us is this helps us to come to a new understanding that this whole thing's not about me. I'm not the center of my world. I know that's news to a couple of folks who might think that you are the center of this thing. Look at your neighbor and say, it's not all about me. This whole thing really is about Jesus and it's about God's glory. Now he is intricately considerate of and interested in the details in your life. But this morning as I preach sovereignty and destiny from a familiar story, I want you to see how God will take you through seasons of refining and seasons of preparation to bring you to something better than you ever dreamed of in your life. Somebody say amen. Our current culture is far from having any longer anything that would resemble a biblical worldview. We've been marinated in a secular humanist mindset and been told that man is the center and man is the standard. Most of you in this room would recognize the folly of that at face value and you would disagree with the statement that man is the center or that man is the standard. We know that God is. We declare it. We sing it. We affirmed that this morning, and we will will shout that until we begin to consider all that that means, to say that God is the center. Sovereignty is a theological term which describes God's godness. He is not only in charge, has the authority over, but he's in control. He is orchestrating. He is the invisible hand in the affairs of your life. We know that he works all things together for good to them that love God and who are the called according to his purpose. Genesis is the seed plot of the Bible. Every major doctrine that exists in the rest of the word begins in seed form in the book of Genesis. We have two opposing ideas. One is divine sovereignty. God is in charge and in control. The other one is human responsibility. I have to get up and take action. I must respond. I must be responsible. Somebody say amen. There's a tension between those two. One person gave an illustration that's not perfect, but it holds up for a while because it's hard to describe these two because we don't understand the infinite the absolute authority and sovereignty of God, because we are finite. We are limited in our understanding. Somebody said one time that that the divine sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man are like two parallel tracks upon which the train of the believer must run. Those tracks never deviate or cross or intersect. If they do, then the train wrecks. It takes the cooperation of God's being in charge and in control, and me taking action and responding to what God has done in my life, for those things to be carried out. Somebody say Amen. Because we we don't believe in fatalism. We're not robots. We're not automatons. Okay, God is in control. Yes, but He also guards the integrity of your choices. Everybody say, I have a choice. Two parallel train tracks running side by side. Both are needed to make progress and for the movement of the train. But remember, God is sovereign. He's not only in charge, but he's in control. Now this morning, I have two points. My first one is going to be the massive portion of what I'm going to be sharing today. And that's just basically the Joseph story. I want to remind you about what happened in this young man's life. He grows up in a home. You remember that God... Started with Abraham, his son Isaac. Isaac then passes the covenant to Jacob. Jacob will eventually have 12 sons, which will become the fathers of the 12 tribes of Israel. Jacob, at this point in his life, when Joseph is about 16, 17 years old, he has 11 sons. The 12th one hasn't been born yet. And he's married to two wives that are sisters Leah and Rachel. You remember, basically, the father-in-law cheated him because he had worked seven years because he loved Rachel so very much, and then he woke up the next morning after his wedding day only to find out that he had just slept with and consummated a marriage between the other sister that he he wasn't in love with. And if you remember, his father-in-law basically said to him, work seven more years and I'll give you Rachel, but you don't have to wait. Go ahead and just take the, the marriage week out with Leah, and then I'll go ahead and give you Rachel. We'll have another wedding celebration. you have have my two daughters. Now, that's crazy because we don't understand that today. That's part of the culture uh, that was particularly happening at that era in history, okay? Just because something is in the Bible doesn't mean that it's right. The Bible records historical events and choices that people make, both bad and good. Somebody say amen, okay? All right, this, this isn't a, a biblical reason for you to go have two wives. Somebody say amen. And all the women said. <laughs> okay, and so he's married to Leah, he's married to Rachel. Rachel is prolific in childbirth. Rachel is barren. Rachel is crying out to God, and finally in prayer one day she prays this amazing prayer. She says, God, give me sons or I die. How I many you of know when you get desperate enough that you say, God, I need you to move in my life and birth something new on the inside of me and give me a, a fresh picture of vision, birth something inside of me, let me reproduce something in my life, Lord, of, uh, of destiny, of character. If you don't do that, I'm going to die, God. I've been like that. I've been like that in seasons in this church where literally... Forgive me, guys, but I I was almost pregnant with a vision that I was struggling to try to birth in this place. And Rachel cries out, and God, the Bible says, God opened her womb. How many of you know you don't just have babies because a man and a woman have sexual relations? The Scripture literally declares that every time a baby comes into the world, God opens the womb, and the children are the blessing of the Lord. Yes, even if you made a mistake and you got pregnant out of wedlock, when when that baby's born, that's a gift from God. Come on, somebody. S- some folk some folks don't get it in the right order. And how many too, how many know too many times the church is so judgmental, and we need to be we need to be running around and comforting and strengthening and loving on some of these young single young ladies, and helping them reconnect to their destiny and 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 give, showing some mercy. Come on, somebody. It's crazy sometimes how the church treats people because of a choice that they made. And, and they're, they're, they're carrying that choice to its full fruition. And I just want you to know when, when, when God opens the womb and he brings the blessing, it's the gift of God. And there's a destiny on that life. God has an, an intention for that baby's life. There are no mistakes. Parents make mistakes, but God doesn't make any mistakes. Come on. You, but there is no mistakes in this room. Somebody say Amen. That wasn't in my first message. I don't know who that's for, but that's for somebody. You need to hear that. And so Joseph, God births Joseph. He comes along, and Jacob is so excited because this Rachel that he loves so dearly is going to bring him a son. And when he's born, he names him Joseph, and Joseph literally means in the Hebrew, he shall add or increase or another son comes. So literally, when, when God opened the womb of Rachel that had been barren for so long, which so many times, God, when God wants to do something very powerful in an individual's life, he'll let barrenness be there until they cry out in desperation, and then he'll open the womb of creativity, and something will begin to happen. A business will be born. A relationship will come together. Uh, a child will be conceived, Literally. And so Joseph comes on the scene, he's born, and oh, how his father loved him, there was great favor and great love, special love from the father. And let me just tell you this, this is one of the things the Bible records, it's not a good idea. Jacob showed so much more love toward Joseph that it made all of the other brothers jealous. Now, I don't think that we love our children all the same, I I think that's an illegitimate idea. It doesn't mean that I love one more than the other. It just means those kids are different, and I love all of them differently. I have enough love in my heart. I, I'm, I'm, I'm indescribably connected to my son, who is my firstborn. But if you think I'm not crazy about my baby girl because of the connection with music and the ministry, you're outside your mind. And, you know, the funny thing is, is they both think that I love the other one more than I do them. I just laughed out loud one day. We were, we were having a, one of those heated family discussions, and I said, I just love it because both of you think I love the other one more than I do you, which means I'm loving both of you with all of my heart. Yeah, and I don't love you the same because you're not the same person. You're different, and I love you differently. That's, it's not about quantity. It's about the recognition of uniqueness. Come on, somebody. Somebody has one child, and they have another one on the way, and they just worry if they can love the second one enough. That's, it's not even what it's about. Because it's not about quantity. But this is what Jacob messed up. This is where he messed up. He showed so much favor because of Joseph being born to the woman that he loved more that all the other brothers were jealous of him. And they hated him. They despised him. The Bible says despised by his own family. The father even went to the extreme of having a special garment sewn for him, a special coat of many colors. Some of you have heard of the movie or the Broadway show, Joseph and the Technicolor Coat. Seven colors, literally the picture of the rainbow which depict the seven spirits of God. Wisdom and understanding and might and power and the counsel of the Lord. Red, orange, yellow, green, blue, indigo, violet. All of those are pictures of the nature of God. Joseph's walking around in this very flashy coat and strutting around because he knows he's the favored son and he knows the others are jealous and he's rubbing it in their faces a little bit. So he's really kind of sowing seeds for what he's going to get. You know what's coming. He goes out one day at 17. He puts on his special coat. He heads out there into the back 40 where the father sends him to take provisions to the other sons that are herding the sheep. And one of the sons sees him and he says, here comes the dreamer, let's kill him. The reason they called him that is because he had just had a couple of dreams that were born of the spirit that God had given to him and he had told them to his family. How many of you know just because God gives you a dream doesn't mean it's time to tell everybody? Some stuff you need to set on a little bit. You need to, you need to wait and let it hide in your heart. Let it kind of uh, ruminate inside you. Let let, let, let it marinate in the juices of experience a little bit before you jump out there. And please, my God, don't tell all your half brothers. See, that's what distinguished Joseph from all the other. Had the same daddy, but he had a different mama than they did. And that's another whole message I wish I had time to preach. But he's out here and he's just kind of strutting, and one of the brothers says, Here comes the dreamer, let's kill him. He had two dreams, and both of the dreams basically put him in a place of authority with the rest of his family bowing down. One was about sheaves of wheat, and it was the ten brothers, and it was the mom and dad. Twelve sheaves of wheat bowing down before his sheaf of wheat. The dad, Jacob, just kind of, you know, turned and looked and said, Hmm. He had another dream. The next day or the next night or the next year, I don't know. We don't know the, the timing that was involved in that. Sometimes you can go from one verse to the next and it's 40 years span. in <laughs> the, the dealing of God in a person's life. And so he has a second dream where he literally sees the planets and the, the moon and the sun and the stars literally are bowing down to him. And this is when even his father spoke up and he said, are you really serious? You think that we're going to bow down before you in authority? How many of you know sometimes the people that love you the most can't see a vision big enough for what God's going to do in your life? And you need to be careful about who you tell your dream to. Make sure it's a full-blooded brother and not a half-brother that you tell your dreams to. Some of you know what I'm talking about. I've, I've had some half-brothers lately that I thought were full brothers and come to find out they weren't. And there was hurt. And there was deception. And how many of you know you've got to get up and go on? You've got to forgive and you've got to say, God, I choose to bless and that's, that's just the choice you have to make. And so here he comes, and they basically, the oldest brother, Reuben, the firstborn, stepped in and said, no, 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 let's don't hurt him. Let's don't do anything that's going to that, break the will of God. And he protected his, his young, strutting, arrogant, favored son of Jacob from being killed. And he says, one of them makes a suggestion, said, let's kill a goat. Let's steal his robe and dip it in blood. Let's throw him in a pit and let's take the robe back to dad and tell him that he was mauled by wild animals. They tell the story. They deceive. They lie. All the brothers join together and they lie. And what they do is when they throw Joseph into the pit, they see a band of Ishmaelites passing by and they literally sell him into slavery for about 30 pieces of silver. Joseph goes into slavery and the story doesn't stop there. He's sold into the house of Potiphar, who is a well-to-do man, who has a large estate. And the favor of the Lord is on Joseph's life. God was with him. The Bible says over and over and over and over in these 13 chapters, the Lord was with him. The Lord's favor was on his life. But he's now a slave. Can you imagine what he's thinking that his own brothers that he thought loved him would would tell a lie and steal his robe and dip it in blood and throw him in the pit and sell him into slavery? And then the, the band of Ishmaelites sell him to Potiphar and he's in Potiphar's house? But quickly, the hand of the Lord is seen to be on his life, and Potiphar recognizes that whatever Joseph puts his hand to, blessing comes. So over a little period of time, Potiphar puts Joseph in charge of the whole estate. Joseph has the power of attorney. He can conduct business in Potiphar's name now. Everything is available and open to him. He can hire and fire. He can make decisions. He can conduct business. Everything is available to him at the house, at the business, except for his wife. Potiphar's wife was off limits. The Bible says Joseph was well built. It's a newer translation that says it that way. Uh, the older translations say that he was handsome, that he was strong. But I'll just tell you this. He, uh, Joseph was a strapping, fine, handsome young man. It, 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 he would have been on the cover of the Israelite edition of Muscle and Fitness. He had some biceps and some pectorals and some quads and He was built. He was strong. He was goodly to look upon, another translation says. And Potiphar's wife took an interested eye in that young man because he was tall and he was strong and he was built and, and there was influence on him. The favor of God was on his life. There was an attractiveness about him that she couldn't explain. And she would just flirt with him on a regular basis. And finally she calls him into the house one day and she tries to lure him into bed with her. And he literally stops and he says, don't let this be so because it would... Offend my God, and it would be against my master who's been nothing but good to me. And it would be wrong to do this to you. And he tries to flee, and she grabs his coat. Joseph had all kinds of trouble with those coats he had all the time. <laughs> he runs away, and his coat stays in her hands. And in order to save face, she screams and cries rape. She lies. Potiphar is infuriated. He throws his favored servant, his estate manager, into Pharaoh's prison. He ends up in the dungeon because a woman lied. Let me just say this. In the aftermath of the Me Too movement, we always need to not jump to conclusions. We need to get both sides of the story. Just because a woman says a man did something doesn't mean that it's always the truth. Because women can lie just like men can lie. Ladies, I don't want to offend you this morning but it's happened. The, the story of Joseph ought to give us pause to stop and go, wait a minute, before I convict that guy, let's let both sides of the story come out in court. Are you hearing me? That's the free part, not what I'm preaching about today. He ends up in prison. I can't even imagine. I can't even fathom what's going through his mind. I bet that every dream he thought he ever had of being as a person of influence now is completely at the bottom of the dungeon where all of the refuse, all of the dung from the other prisoners is running down into the basement of the dungeon where Joseph is in shackles and he's in prison. But something keeps him there in that place from being in despair. The Bible says in the book of Psalms that Joseph stayed sweet while he was in prison. And even while his feet were in shackles, the word of the Lord tried him. God wouldn't let him forget about the dream that he had, about becoming a man of influence and a man of destiny. And through what became weeks that turned into months that ended up becoming years, literally the head, the warden over the prison was saw that the hand of God was on Joseph's life. He might not have called it that because he was in a nation and a culture that believed in multiple gods. He would have probably said the hands of the gods are on this young man. And so he puts him in charge everywhere Joseph goes. He's running the show before it's over with. He's in charge of the prison. He's in charge of the prisoners. And he stays sweet in the middle of it. He somehow is able to keep the right spirit and the right attitude, how often do we end up in a place where we go, God, I hate this job. You want to get up and sing the second verse to that, take this job and shove it to your boss. And you're cussing the boss, not to his face, but you're doing it under your breath. God, how did I end up in this marriage? God, how did I have these God-forsaken kids that I have? How I many of you know what I'm talking about? Don't raise your hand. Sometimes those blessed, favored ones are in a moment where you just feel like you could come this close to just squeezing the last little bit of life right out of them from around the neck. I know, I know, I know y'all are too holy to feel that way. I mean, I'm just, maybe I'm just confessing my sin this morning. I've been there. i felt that way. Somehow he was able to stay sweet in the prison. And you know the story. He ends up one day after having been down there for years, and here comes two important people bouncing down into the dungeon with him. One is the cupbearer to to Pharaoh, to the king. Another one is the the, the baker for Pharaoh. And while they're there, the, the story doesn't tell us how long it takes place, maybe a few weeks, maybe a couple of months or whatever. But they both have dreams, and they're talking about the dreams and wonder what they meant. And the hand of the Lord is on Joseph, and he hears the dreams, and he interprets it. And what he interprets comes to pass. I won't take time to tell the dreams. It's too much because I'm trying to cover 13, 14 chapters in the book of Genesis. The baker ends up, his life being taken, which was Joseph's interpretation of his dream. The, the cupbearer to the, to the king, to Pharaoh, ends up being restored where he's back in a place of good favor with Pharaoh, and when they come to get him, Joseph grabs him by the coattail, and he says, hey, I want you to remember me. When you get to Pharaoh, tell him, there's a man of integrity down here who's been lied on. I want you to give me a good word. Put in a good word with me for Pharaoh. Everybody say, two years passed. Two years. It's not next week. It's not even next month. But it's two rotations around the sun. Two years Two revolutions around the sun. Two years passed, and Pharaoh has a dream, and he dreams about seven fat cows and about seven skinny cows walking up out of the Nile and consuming and eating up the seven fat cows. He, he dreams about seven stalks of grain that are producing all this amazing, wonderful grain, and then he dreams about seven skinny frail-looking little stalks that consume those seven fat ones. And he he goes to his astrologers, he goes to his magicians, and nobody can interpret the dream. And in that moment, the cupbearer remembers Joseph two years later, who stayed sweet in the prison anyway. And the cupbearer says, Oh, great Pharaoh, when I was put down into into the dungeon, there was a man who interpreted my dream, and he interpreted the baker's dream, and exactly what Joseph said came to pass. The baker lost his head and I was restored to favor. And Pharaoh said, send and get me this Hebrew. I want to talk to him. I want to meet him. And Joseph has been down there in that place unkept, unprepared. He's got years of beard growing and he's got to shave himself and clean himself up and get ready and bathe. And he goes up to get ready to go before Pharaoh and Pharaoh shares his dream and Joseph interprets it and he said, the seven fat years of great production of crops... We're going to be followed by seven years of famine, and it'll all be consumed. And Joseph says, This is my plan, O great Pharaoh. We will bring everything into the storehouses, we will build storehouses, and we will amass all of this great amount of grain so that when the famine hits, we will be able to take care of your great people. Pharaoh was so impressed that in one day, Joseph went from the dungeon in prison to sitting the second in command as the prime minister of the most powerful nation on the planet. During this period of history, Egypt was the premier empire. It was. It covered massive amounts of, of land, northern Africa. So it was a powerful, powerful nation. And in one moment's time, after 13 years of being lied on, of being cheated, of brothers that mocked him, a family that sold him for silver... Uh, of of staying faithful in the midst of of, of tribulation and temptation, of people lying on him, uh, of of maintaining his integrity. He was raised up to become the second in command under Pharaoh, wearing the signet ring on his finger with the power of attorney where he could do business in the name of Pharaoh, had every bit as much power, except the only one more powerful than him was Pharaoh himself. And what I want to remind you of is that the scripture we quoted, Genesis 50 verse 20, which I told you was the Romans 8, 28 of the Old Testament? You intended this for evil, but God intended it. But God. Everybody say, but God. But God intended it for good, for all, for the saving of many lives. Because see, I want to tell you when, you, when you've got a dream in your heart, and when everything that can happen that'll come against it is coming against you, and you feel like you've lost Whatever breath is left in your lungs to give God praise for a dream you thought you had because it's died, it's in that moment when you finally come through and you turn around and take a breath and you look back and you go, oh, God, I see what you were doing. You were working on me. You were refining me. You were testing me. You were proving me. You were preparing me. You were getting me ready. I thought I was ready 13 years ago. But God... God sent me to the University of the Spirit, and I have a degree that took 13 years in prison for me to come out on the other side with a Ph.D., and it was piled higher and deeper, honey, I want to tell you. Some of you are struggling right now because of the circumstances you're facing. You've trusted God and it hadn't turned out the way you thought it was going to. Please don't quit, because all you need is a but God. All you need is a but God. You might have gotten bad news about your health, but God is able to heal. You might have been in a marriage that you wonder if it's even going to last, but God can turn the tide. You may be in a business, not just working for somebody else, but a business that you have literally taken everything you have and put into it. But God can turn it around, and God can provide, and God can give you a fresh idea, and God can give you his blessing. Come on, somebody. seven lean years hit hard. And Jacob says, boys, we're going to have to go down to Egypt and we're going to have to get some grain because we've heard that there's somebody down there that stored grain and made preparation. Jacob had no knowledge. He thinks his long-lost beloved son of favor is dead. He doesn't know that it's Joseph down there on the throne. He sends the sons to him. The sons go and stand before him. Immediately, Joseph recognizes his brothers. I don't have time to give you the details of this story because it's about the last four or five chapters of the book of Genesis, but it's an amazing story. Read it when you get a chance. In the conversation, he hears that another brother has been born to Rachel, his mama, which he knew would be his full-blooded brother. When this baby was born, Rachel died in childbirth, and her last words were, "'Name this child Benoni, the son of my sorrows.'" And Rachel breathed their last, and Jacob, spoke, and Jacob spoke and said, No, that will not be this baby's name. He will not be son of my sorrows. He will be Benjamin, son of my right hand. And that's what he named him. He named him Benjamin. Joseph heard his brothers talking about the other brother. He questioned them. Were there any other brothers at home? Yes, we have one more who's born of the same mother of, 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 of this Joseph who... Had a bad demise. They lied in front of him about what had happened to him. He he had had a bad situation in his life and he died. They don't know that they're standing in front of Joseph himself. Joseph says, Go back home. I want you to bring this other brother with you because I don't know that you may be spies, that you may be here just trying to spy out what we're doing here in this nation. He was making them bring his full blooded brother back. Oh, no, no, we can't do that. It's not possible. Our, our, the gray head of our father will go down to his grave if something happened to Benjamin too because Joseph is dead. No, I'm going to keep one of you and until you come back, this one's going to be kept in jail. And he called Simeon, which kind of astonished them because they didn't know that he knew which one was which. Simeon means hearing and, and hearing just got put in prison. How many of you know God will lock up your hearing until you obey the last thing he told you to do? Some of you are going, God, I can't hear anything. Well, you know what you need to do when when the heavens are brass, when you can't hear anything? Go back and make sure you've obeyed the last three things he's told you because he's not going to tell you three more when you haven't obeyed the last three. (laughs) Simeon means he who hears and obeys. And sometimes Simeon has to go sit in a jail cell. He can't hear anymore until we actually fulfill what God has already commanded us to do. That will preach the rest of the day right there. Oh, my Lord and my God. They go back to Canaan. They end up bringing Benjamin back. I don't have time to dig into this story. I need to finish here. Let me just, let me wrap this up. The moment comes where he reveals himself. Brothers, I'm Joseph. I'm your brother that you sold into slavery. And they have an amazing, wonderful family reunion and everything is blessed and they're so excited. And then Jacob comes and he's so just beyond himself that what Jacob and what Joseph had seen in terms of a dream, God had brought it to pass. And Jacob and the whole family are all living in Egypt now, and they're under the blessing of God, and Jacob dies. And now the brothers are scared. And what we read this morning is when Joseph was telling his brothers, look, am I God? No. He said, you intended harm for me, but God, everybody say, but God. But God intended it for good. For the saving of many souls alive. God sent me here ahead of you to prepare. I went 13 years through the school of the spirit, the wilderness, through the prison. God teaching me and training me. It's crazy, folks, that David was anointed as king at 17, but he didn't take the throne until 30. 13 years later, he runs from Saul. 13 in scripture is the number of rebellion. I don't believe David was rebelling against God, but God was dealing with rebellion in David's heart to prepare him to be the king. Joseph was sold, dropped into a pit, and sold into slavery when he was 17. Thirteen years later, through Potiphar's house, through prison experiences, he comes to the throne. God dealt with the rebellion in his heart to prepare him. God, right now, don't waste your current experience. Don't curse where you are right now because God is preparing you for something greater that you can't even imagine. Squeeze all the juice out of the grape of what you're going through. Joseph was petted by his father, he was pitted by his brothers, he was potted in the house of Potiphar, lied on by his wife, and he went to prison. But the day came where Pharaoh called, and he put him on the throne. How many of you know, you can be pitted, and you can be pitted, and you can be potted, but if you stay sweet in the prison, God will put you on the throne. Come on, somebody. Have you gotten anything out of this this morning? Isaiah 46 says, Remember the things I have done in the past, for I alone am God. I am God and there is none like me, only I can tell you the future before it even happens. Everything I plan will come to pass, for I do whatever I wish. Psalm 115 verse 3, our God is in the heavens and he does whatever he pleases. He is sovereign. He's not just in charge, he's in control. Somebody says, yeah, well if God is sovereign, then why pray? You know what, I'm going to turn that question around to you and I just want you to think about this. If God's not sovereign, why pray? Because if he's not in charge and he's not in control, if he doesn't have the authority and the power to change the circumstances, then your prayers are all in vain. No, you pray because he is sovereign. You pray because he can change things. He can do it. But God in your life. Come on, somebody put your hands together and give the Lord praise. Quick list. Just three minutes here. Give me, give me three minutes. Here's a list of the similarities that should cause you to marvel at the sovereignty of God because this is not about... It's so easy to read myself into the Joseph story, but the greatest picture of who we're seeing here is Jesus in the Old Testament. Look at this. He's the object of his father's special love. Joseph, so is Jesus. He had promises of divine exaltation. Joseph, and Jesus. He was mocked by his family. Say it, Joseph and Jesus. He was sold for pieces of silver, Joseph and Jesus. He was stripped of his robe, Joseph and Jesus. He was delivered up to the Gentiles. He was falsely accused. He was faithful in the middle of temptation, Joseph and Jesus. He was thrown into prison. He stood before rulers. His power was acknowledged by those in authority. He saves his rebellious brothers from death when they realize who he is. Joseph. You know what? When you realize who Jesus is, he will save you from eternal death. Do you see that? Is that amazing? He's exalted after and through humiliation. He embraces God's purpose even though it brings Him intense physical harm. He is the instrument God uses at the hands of the Gentiles to bless His people. He welcomes Gentiles to be part of His family. He gives hungry people bread. Joseph and Jesus. People must bow their knee before Him. Say it, Joseph and Jesus. Jesus is the real picture here this is a snapshot it's basically God saying I am God and I can show you the future before it even happens because Joseph's story is Jesus' story it's it's Jesus in prophetic type in the Old Testament we're seeing literally here the one that was born of the Father, the one who was loved specially by the Father's love and the Bible says that every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess to the glory of God the Father that Jesus Christ is Lord What this bottom line is this morning, and I'm finished, is this. It's not about me. It's not about you. It's about Jesus. And God cares more about the development of my character than he does about my current comfort. He'll make me a little uncomfortable in order to build something on the inside of me. Are you hearing that this morning? Ultimately, God's concern is his own glory. That's what our lives are for are to give and to bring glory to God. I don't know what your circumstances entail today, what kind of mountains in front of you, what bad news you've gotten, the struggle that you face, a hopeless situation that you're dealing with. Humanly speaking, it is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Because we know that He works all things together for good to them that love Him and who are the called According to his purpose. Right now, in this moment, God, who is sovereign and who is in control, is giving everybody in this room a choice where you can lean into him and you can say, Jesus, take my life. You're Lord of everything. Call the shots. Be the boss. If there's anything in you this morning that would crowd and say, I'm desperate, like Rachel did and said, Give me sons or I die. God, I'm desperate. I can't keep living the way I've been living. I need you in my life. Every head bowed, every eye closed, nobody looking around.